Hey, awesome, awesome, great video. Great weekend. We're wishing all of our uh, dads here at Rockbridge Community Church happy Father's Day and just glad to celebrate that with, with all of you. Want to welcome you wherever you're at, any of our six physical locations, and also many of you are still watching, tuning in, worshiping with us online. Thank you so much for uh, being with us. My name is Matt, just one of the pastors on our team, and we're in the middle of our summer sermon series called Dangerous Prayers, where we're praying prayers. You know, you kind of pray prayers to keep you safe or you pray prayers to help you get safe or be healthy or take care of this or take care of that. And we're talking about some prayers that if we pray them, they're dangerous. They're dangerous not so far in necessarily like our survival. They're dangerous to our status quo. They're dangerous to our status quo. And so join with me. We're going to just pray together, ask God to open our eyes and hearts and receive what he wants to say to us because you are not here by accident. Let's pray together. God, thank you for every brother, every sister, every person here today, every dad here today. Thank you, God, for those who are here who may not even believe in you yet or have trusted and given you the steering wheel of their life yet. God, we just thank you for everybody that's here because we believe everybody's here for a reason. And I just ask you, God, in Jesus' name, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear from you and to receive the gift. That's the reason we're here today. We love you, Jesus, because you first loved us. In your name we pray, amen and amen. So uh, <clears throat> this is a picture of the USS or the SS Titanic, and, and we've kind of all familiar with the story. It's one of the worst civilian maritime accidents in, in history. 1,517 individuals lost their lives when this ship struck an, an iceberg. And because it was such an incredibly uh, just a disaster, there was a ton of investigations, and, and there's lots of reasons why the ship sank, and what if it didn't really have anything to do with the iceberg, but it had to do with some things that went on before the ship actually set sail or how the ship was sailing. So an investigation revealed a couple of things. The first thing is there was a lookout that was relieved of his duty and did not sail with the ship when she set sail. And in, in the haste and the exchange of finding their replacement, this lookout forgot to give his replacement a key just a small key. This key ended up being the key to the binoculars locker. Now, I, I was in the Navy, so I kind of, you know, love all this stuff and relate to all this stuff because I spent, uh, you know, a lot of time on two different ships. And, and so the lookouts use binoculars to be able to see the horizon, to be able to see, you know, is there something radar's not picking up? And of course, back then you would have had less accurate stuff. So, so he, they didn't use binoculars. And then an investigation revealed that had they had binoculars, they would have seen said ice at least in time to make some kind of emergency evasive maneuver. Secondly, the ship was receiving repeated warnings through the night about icebergs and floating ice in the area of their track, in the course that they were taking, but they took no evasive actions, didn't alter course, didn't change course. They kept steaming ahead. Additionally, the captain of the ship made a decision to go through these waters at a higher rate of speed than would be recommended. And, and so you see all these factors correlate and combine, and what happens? 1,000. 517 people are killed because the ship hit an iceberg in an accident that could have been entirely preventable. And the problem, and I'll just be summative in this, the problem really is that at least in, in those three instances I just described, the lookout, the fact that they were told not to go in these waters and the captain went faster than he knew would have been safe given the fact that there could be hazards in the water, is because people were out of position. People were out of position. And today's dangerous prayer is this. 
God, would you put me in position? Now, let me unpack that a little bit because when we hear this word, a lot of us are like, Matt, I mean, I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I get up and go to work, I come home, I feed some things, I do some chores, and I go to bed, and I get up and do the same thing over and in. I mean, I, it, position is just that's where I am in life. I'm 20-something, that's what I do. I'm a college student, that's my position. I'm retired, that's my position. But when we, we have to think and understand, what does God mean? What are, and we're going to see this in Scripture when he talks about being in position. So, for example, if we go back, the story of the Titanic, the captain was in his position as the captain of the ship, but mentally he was out of position because he was acting in a way that was unsafe for his ship. The lookout who failed to give a key over, so the lookouts were out of position and they were ill-equipped. You could make the case the ship should have never even been in those waters because they were warned that those waters had some hazards in it. So all along you got different people, people are just out of position and results in a disaster. So you can be in the right place, but be out of position in terms of your attitude, right? You can be in the wrong place, but think you're in the right place. God may want to be calling you to go do something new, go do something bold, go do something different for him, but you could be out of position and he wants you to get back in position. You know, we're talking to dads and a month ago or so we talked to moms. You can biologically be a father, but spiritually you can be out of position. You can be legally married to the lady you're sitting with here today, but spiritually, relationally, emotionally, you can be out of position. You can call yourself a Christian and think, man, I'm okay because I've got a position in heaven whenever I die. And I'm praying that day comes a long, long time away. But you can be out of position with God right here, right now. And so what we're asking for is God put me in position, whatever that might mean for me in my life for such a time as this. And so to help us get to this prayer and really understand what we mean by this phrase, this word position, we're going to go to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel, book of Ezekiel. We're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 22, and we're going to watch God work to get his people back in position, and we're going to see why this is so incredibly powerful, so incredibly important to realize, one, how God works, and two, why this is an important prayer to pray and an important prayer to pursue in our lives. So here we go. This is the prophecy that comes from Ezekiel from, to God, to the people. He says, son of man, that's his name for Ezekiel in this book, say to her, and he's talking about Israel, you are a land that has not been cleansed, a land that has not received rain in the the day of indignation. So God is upset with his chosen people. Why is he upset? The conspiracy of her prophets within her is like a roaring lion tearing its prey. They devour people, seize wealth and valuables. Her priests do violence to my instructions and profane my holy things. So spiritually, the nation is off track. The spiritual leadership of the nation is off track. The spiritual leaders, we could say, are out of position. They make no distinction between the holy and the common, and they do not explain the difference between the clean and the unclean. And I, God says, am profaned among them. God is not being honored. God is not being glorified by his chosen people. Then he goes to like the, the government leaders and the civic leaders, or we might say the politicians. Her officials within her are like wolves tearing their prey, shedding blood, destroying lives in order to make profit dishonestly. Her prophets plaster for them with whitewash by seeing false visions and lying divinations saying this is what the Lord God says when the Lord is not spoken. So prophets are claiming to speak for the Lord God, but they're not speaking accurately or correctly and thus not speaking prophetically. And then it broadens out and says, hey, all the people, 
All the people are out of position. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy, and they've unlawfully exploited the foreigner, those the, the resident aliens or the immigrants who are in the land. People are being mistreated. And so the people of Israel are out of position. Now, here's, what's, here's what we need to lean in for just a second. Because probably by now, and I hope and pray by now, you can begin to identify that, hey, there's some things maybe in your life or some things maybe in our community or your country or your family where things are out of position. That, that you know, if God were com coming in to decorate the interior of your life, you would say, you know, I know that's out of position. That if God were coming in to inspect or look at your marriage or your family or our nation or our cities or our counties or whatever, you know, we would find some things out of position. But here's the curious thing. What is God going to do about it? How is God going to pursue a resolution and a solution to the out-of-position problem? Because I think we, we misunderstand God. Because I think a lot of us, because, you know, there's, a, there's some examples maybe in Scripture. We've heard stories from other places where, you know, God's going to do something just powerful and miraculous and it's going to, you know, and boom, everything's going to be fixed and everything's going to be okay. But that's not what God does. I mean, in the situation in Israel right here, you've heard me, I mean, we've read it together. It's not great. It's not ideal. I mean, with many of us, we can read it like, God, it feels like it could be written to me or feels like it could be written to our country or feels like it could be written about my family. What does God do when he finds his people so out of position? And look what he does. He searches. He searches. I search for a man among them who would repair the wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land so that I might not destroy it. God doesn't send a miracle. God doesn't send some powerful sign or some miraculous intervention. He actively goes and looks for a man. He actively goes and looks for a person. And then we get this metaphor that we'll unpack in just a second. Someone who would repair the wall. Because the, the wall is the symbolic status, the symbolic power source, the protective realm of a city and of a people. And he says, so the wall has a gap in it. And I'm looking for somebody to stand in that gap. And that is how I will move people into position. That is how God will deal with the problems that are going on in Israel right now. So I ask as a question, the problems that are going on in our nation, your family, your marriage, your home, your job, your work, your neighborhood, maybe God's looking for you. Because that seems to be what God's up to. Now, we get this metaphor of a wall and standing in the gap, and this comes out of a rich history and heritage of Israel and their, their, their time as a people where walls and gaps in the walls were always significant. Whether we're talking about the walls of Jericho and looking for vulnerability, or we're talking about a guy named Nehemiah who's tasked by God to rebuild a wall. But the wall was this important part of a city's stature and protective nature. So listen to this. Nehemiah gets a report. He's off in Babylon in exile. He gets a report that things are not great in Jerusalem. And here's the report. The remnant of believers of Jews in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. What is their trouble and disgrace? Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and his gates have been burned. And, and Nehemiah hears this 
And he's burdened. He sits down and he weeps. And he, I mourn for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heavens because something was off. His people, God's people that were out of position. And the wall was symbolic of it. The prophet Isaiah pulls up this notion of a gap. And he says, this sin of yours, this iniquity of yours will be like a crumbling gap, a bulge in a high wall whose collapse will come in an instant, whose collapse will come suddenly. So a gap in a wall is a problem, and God uses that now to illustrate that there are gaps that occur in our lives. There are gaps that occur in our families. There's gaps that occur in our communities. There's a gaps that occur inside of us in our character, and that becomes a metaphor that, that becomes prevalent and prominent in this understanding of what it means to be in position. So let me define the word gap for us. A gap would be an area, a situation, or a relationship where God is not known and or he's not being represented or not being represented correctly or, and he's not being glorified. That's a gap. So, so a gap can exist while we're calling ourselves Christians. A gap can exist while we're sitting here listening to a sermon. A, a gap can exist in, in, a, in a religious context. A gap can exist in a family. A gap can exist in our character. A gap can exist in our marriages. A gap can exist in our jobs. A gap can exist in our culture. A gap can exist anywhere. It's just any area, any situation, any relationship where God's not being followed, God's not being honored, God's not being represented, and God's not being glorified. And God presents himself over and over and over in scripture as a gap filler, as a gap restorer, as a rebuilder. Amos says it this way. God says, in that day, I will restore the fallen shelter of David. And what does that restoration look like? He again draws on the gap metaphor. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. So God's going to restore his people. How does God work to restore how does God work to close gaps? He seeks a person who's in position. So the goal is people who are in position to be a channel of God's grace and love and truth to other people. That's the goal. That God is seeking people, seeking a person who would channel his grace and his love and his truth to other people. In fact, I, I love the phrase, he actively seeks. So, so when we're praying, God, would you do something about it? God's like, well, I'm looking for someone who will. I'm looking for a vessel, a channel. I'm looking for someone to stand watch. I'm looking for someone that I can trust and work through them to repair, to restore, and to rebuild. Makes me think about our history as a church and we have this core value that captures this sentiment. It's one of our five core values as a church that we're bridge builders. That, that we're actively trying, what's a bridge do? A bridge closes gaps. A bridge closes gaps between two things that are previously separated or uncrossable. And so as a church, we came along almost 20 years ago, hard to believe, right? About 19 and a half years ago, we came along and found that about 60% of our first community, the Dalton Whitfield community, didn't go to church. We found out they didn't go to church for several different reasons. And we said, hey, could we be a gap filler? Could we be bridge builders? 
and to, to bring the message of Jesus Christ to people. We found out a lot of people were interested in Jesus. They just lost faith in the church. We found out there were barriers like dress codes, barriers like how the church had mishandled money, barriers like, you know, the church taught in such a way that people couldn't understand or couldn't apply it on Monday morning or around the dinner table. And so barriers because, you know, some people came in and felt judged and shamed. And so we just said, hey, look, what we found in Scripture is that people that weren't religious and people that weren't what we might call spiritual, they loved hanging out with Jesus. And if we're supposed to be people who represent Jesus, people ought to be comfortable being a part of the church or coming to church or asking questions of the church. And so we said, hey, we're going to be bridge builders. And so that is what we're talking about as we talk about are we in position? And, and, and so God in, in Ezekiel is searching for somebody who can stand in the gap, somebody who can restore, repair, and solidify the wall. And here's the indictment. Here's the indictment. I searched for a man among them who would repair the wall and stand in the gap before me, but I found no one. But I found no one. So here, here's the question that I think we should wrestle with. How much of a problem could this be? Because I, I, I honestly think, I honestly think we're all pretty good at diagnosing or seeing problems. We're not very good about putting ourselves in a position for God to use us to speak into, live into, love into those problems. So how much of a problem could this be? So, so let's go back to the very, very beginning where, where this kind of mess of a world all started, right? So Adam and Eve, right, they're together. And so she, Eve, took some of its fruit and ate it and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. I think the two most powerful words in that text are the words with her. What was Adam doing? Nothing. He's married to her. He's with her. Is he protecting? No. Is he providing? No. Is he encouraging? No. Is he reminding? No. He's the captain of the ship going too fast through icebergs. He's out of position. And so sin enters and shame enters and guilt enters. And notice the first question that God asked them. They hid from the Lord, as if that were possible, among the trees of the garden. And so the Lord calls out to the man. He doesn't call out to the woman. He calls out to the man. And here's the question he asks. Where are you? I think that's probably one of the greatest questions we ever can find in Scripture. I think it's a question we all ought to be humble enough and teachable enough wherever we are right now, to let God ask us that question, where are we? Now, does God know where we are? Absolutely, he's God, he's all-knowing. So why does he ask that question to Adam? Because he wants Adam to recognize you're out of position. This is not where I want you. But, but, but listen, now that's scary to some people, the fact that God knows and God asks that question. But what we need to see is this. God goes seeking them while they're hiding from him. So some of you here today, you might be thinking you're running and you're hiding from God. God is seeking you out because he hasn't given up on you. He hasn't given up on you as a dad, a husband, a mom, 
or someone who could be adopted into his forever family. God doesn't quit. He seeks. And sometimes he seeks with this powerfully important question. Hey, where are you really? Are you in position? So how big of a problem could this be? Let's fast forward into the history of Israel. We go to probably Israel's most famous king, King David. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel out to fight. But David remained in Jerusalem. David, where are you? Are you in position? Because the text clearly wants us to know that kings in the spring go out to war. But David remained in Jerusalem. And then one evening, David gets up from his bed, strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a beautiful woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. And we've all seen too many movies and too many soap operas, and we know what happens next. And some of you are like, man, that kind of stuff's in the Bible. You should read it. It's such a great book, right? (laughs) But, But the question remains, David, where are you? Where are you militarily? Where are you spiritually? Where are you relationally with your wife? David, where are you? Now, so let's flip the question. So we can see two two simple stories from Scripture. Some of us could walk up here and say, yeah, I can tell you there's a problem. But let's, let's flip the question. Let's go to a positive. How much potential does this have? This, this potential of you and I being in the right position of God saying, where are you? And us saying, God... As best I know how, I'm right where you want me, called me, created me, died for me to be. So how much potential does this have? So you can go to the book of Numbers and and the people of Israel get in big trouble. And God's righteous anger and righteous wrath is furiously opposed to what Israel has done. And so Moses tells Aaron, Aaron, his right-hand man, he says, Aaron, I need you to go stand in the gap. I need you to go get between the death that's occurring and the people that are still alive. And so Aaron goes and stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was halted. One man stood between the wrath of God and the remnant of God's people. Go to the book of Esther. There's a beauty pageant, right? And somehow... This Jewish girl wins the beauty pageant for a pagan king. And then lo and behold, there's a conspiracy and then there's a planned genocide that all the Jewish people are to be killed and wiped out. And this little Jewish girl is the only hope. She's in position. She's the queen. And the king's really sweet on her. And so her uncle says, Esther, you've got to go talk to your husband. You've got to go talk to the king. And she's like... I can't go to the king unless the king calls for me. And then her uncle says this, but who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther, who do you think enabled you to win the beauty pageant? Who do you think put you where you are? And he didn't put you where you were are just so you could eat royal food and wear royal clothes. You have a holy purpose right? And then what about, what about the author and perfecter of our faith? He's ministered all throughout the promised land, all throughout Israel. And then suddenly about toward the end of his, his three year or so ministry, it says he determined to go to Jerusalem. 
And if we were, you know, if we, we got into the context of that, that meant he was going to Jerusalem to die on a cross. He was going to Jerusalem to take up position on the ultimate symbol of the Christian faith, which is the cross. And we know what's happening on that cross from 2 Corinthians 5.21 because it says, He, God the Father, made the one, that's God the Son, who did not know sin, Jesus never sinned, to be sin for us. So Jesus took position on the cross to take my place, to take your place, to take my sin, to take your sin. He's in position so I don't have to face the judgment of God. So that now in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we assume a new position. We're in Christ. We're declared righteous in Christ. We're called sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. We have a position in God's family. We have a secure position in all of eternity. And God the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us because God took our place on the cross so he could take his place inside the throne and on the throne of our heart. So I, I, I want to ask the question again, where are you? Some of you right now, if I said, hey, are you in Christ, in the world, or in sin? That's pretty clear. You can't be in three at once, right? Maybe right now is your time to recognize that God made the one who did not know sin, the sinless Jesus, to be sin for you. He took your place. He took your position. Should have been you on the cross. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that you would just right now, you could even say, God, come into my life. God, I want to be in you. I want to be in your family. I want to be with you forever. And as best I know how, God, I'm following you. That's my new position. So where are you? So <clears throat> we saw this example in Ezekiel where there was nobody. There was nobody that God could find to stand in the gap. I want to give us a good example. I want to give us an example of someone that God did find and someone that God did put in the right position. And ironically, his name is King Hezekiah, but ironically, King Hezekiah, this is the most repeated story in the entire Old Testament. I did not know that. It's the most repeated story. You find it in Kings, you find it in Chronicles, you find the story in Isaiah. And so God positions Hezekiah to be this king, to be this gap filler, to be in position. And I think this gives us a model. I think this gives us a model for our lives. I think it gives us a model for our churches. I think it gives us a model for what our nation needs the most, which is spiritual awakening and holy revival. I'll talk about some of that next week in a message called God Bless America. But here is what happened to position King Hezekiah to be in the gap. We go to the, we go to the book of Second Chronicles. We'll pick it up in chapter 29. So Hezekiah is 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the Lord's sight. So, so where are you doing what's right in God's sight? So that's his commitment. That's the mantra of his life. So, so let's understand this. Let's all embrace this. I, I want to speak all of, the, all of the Christians, all the Christ followers. It is not enough to call ourselves a Christian. We must represent Christ by doing what's right in his sight. The goal is not just to become a Christian, but it's to be a Christian, to be Christ-like where God places. So we must represent Christ. 
I, I think the call of the church, the call of the church in our families, the call of the church in our life is not, are we a Christian or not? The call is, are we representing Christ to our wives, fathers? Are we representing Christ to our husbands? Are we representing Christ to our kids? When we go to work, are we representing Christ? Are we doing what's right in his sight? See, here's something we need to understand. When there's a problem in the community, in the home, when there's a problem on your, in your job and in your neighborhood, and we're asking God, God, do something, God's actively seeking someone who will stand in that gap. And what that means is this. God's will is a who. God's will is us. God puts us in position so that we can reflect him and his ways. God puts us in position so he can live his life through you. And this shapes out two ways. It shapes out proactively through our holy passions and holy burdens. And I hope everybody here today can identify, hey, I have this holy passion and this holy burden. And listen, yours don't, it doesn't have to be the same as mine. But a holy passion and a holy burden is basically something that breaks the heart of God that also breaks your heart. What broke our heart and what still drives the mission and vision of this church is people that do not know Christ and do not know the difference his church can make. That's what started this church. That's a proactive God's will. Then there's reactive. Reactive is you go to work and some, a crisis happens. Your teenager calls and brings a crisis to you. You get that text and you react the same way Jesus would. You're God's will in that situation. I tell people all the time, it's easier to act like a Christian than to react like one. I mean, everybody's, everybody right here right now that's listening to me online at home in one of our six campuses, yeah, baby, we love Jesus. We're gonna go out in that, you're going to go out there, you're going to get a text, you're going to read a social media post, somebody's going to cut you off, and are you going to react like a Christian then? Your wife's not going to meet your expectations, you're going to react like a Christian then? Your teenager's going to infuriate you, your boss is going to be a jerk tomorrow, you're going to act like a Christian then? But you're God's will because he's actively seeking a man to stand in the gap. So what we see Hezekiah do, and this is the, these are the steps. Here they, are, here they are. Embrace the position. I can't think of a higher calling than the privilege of representing the one who died in my place. I, I remember when I, when I joined the Naval, Navy, went to the Naval Academy, I remember like, clockwork. I mean, it's just an unforgettable day when they put the summer whites on us. You know, it was like, you look like Tom Cruise in Top Gun, right? So, <laughs> somebody remembers that. You're coming out with a remake. And I mean, we go to a Baltimore Orioles game and it was drilled into our head. You are not Matt Evans from Rocky Face, Georgia. You represent the United States Navy. But that's a big difference, right? Rocky Face to the Navy, right? And so you're just like, man, I represent something bigger than myself, okay? You represent the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Embrace that. Embrace that. Don't say God can't use you. Don't say God's done with you. Embrace that calling. So in the first year of Hezekiah's reign, he gets busy. Look, first year, first month. He opened the doors to the Lord's temple and he said, hey, this stuff's broken, let's repair them. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the Eastern public center and he said to them, hear me, Levites, consecrate yourself, set yourself apart now, consecrate the temple of the Lord, remove everything impure from the holy place. What does he say? He says, look, we've drifted, we're out of position and there is one way to get back in position instantly. It is to practice this great word called repentance repentance is not I'm sorry I got caught 
Repentance is, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I misrepresented the name of God. I'm sorry I offended God. And so repentance is a continual thing this side of heaven. We're all in a state of repentance. And so Hezekiah leads his people to practice repentance. This is great news for everybody here today. Because I say it this way, if there's a thousand steps between you and God, God's taken 999 of them. The only one he wants you to take is repentance, and repentance is you turn around. You may feel like you are so far from God. All you got to do is turn back to him, and he's right there in an instant. That repentance immediately puts you in position. It's Jonah in the belly of the whale. Anybody's out of position, it's Jonah. Right? Read Jonah chapter 2. It's a prayer of repentance. As soon as he prays it, God comes back, and the whale spits him up, and he's back on mission with God. That might be some of us today. So we practice repentance. And then then the story goes on. We continue to read this awakening, this revival that happens because of Hezekiah's leadership. Hezekiah stationed the Levites in the Lord's temple with cymbals and harps and lyres. And and according to the command of David, gathered the king's seer, the prophet Nathan, for the command was from the Lord through his prophets. So here's what goes on. There's not been a king that's looked in the Old Testament or looked in what we might call their Bible back then. There's not been a king that's led the people to do that. And so Hezekiah's like, we're reading the words of God, but we're not reading them to say we read them. We're not reading them to say, check, I had my quiet time. We're going to be in the Word of God to do the Word of God. What's wrong with Christianity? Let's just talk about our area. What's wrong with Christianity in the Bible Belt? You got a ton of Bible knowledge and very little Bible application. If we want to see, God bless America, God bless us. If we want to see awakening, revival, if we want to get in position, we do not read the Bible for information. We read it for transformation, which is what Hezekiah led the people to do. Then Hezekiah sends word throughout all Israel and Judea to come to the Lord's temple in Jerusalem to observe the Passover of the Lord, the God of Israel. The Passover is the event that commemorates when God sent that 10th and final plague throughout Egypt and he passed over all of the homes that had the blood on the doorpost. And the angel of death killed all the firstborns. But all the sons of Israel were, were spared because of the blood that, that was uh, sacrificed in the Passover. But that's pointing us to something. But this Passover thing gets repeated in this story. The king, his officials, the entire congregation decided to observe the Passover of the Lord. The proposal pleased the king and the congregation, so they affirmed the proposal and they spread the message throughout all of Israel from Bathsheba till Dan to come and observe the Passover. For they had not observed it often as prescribed. And we go to the New Testament and we see, oh, Christ is our Passover and he's been sacrificed. So we see Hezekiah bringing the people back to, at that time, the defining and the central element of the faith that made Israel distinct, which was the Passover to get them out of Egypt and to spare them the wrath of God. Jesus is the Passover because Jesus stood between you and I and the wrath of God. And the wrath of God went to Jesus, not on us. Jesus, that was his position. We read that about the cross, right? He who had knew no sin became sin for us. So Jesus is our Passover. So the lesson for us is this. We must keep the gospel central and dominant. What Jesus has done, all our doing flows from what he's done. Everything we do flows from what he's done. 
It's the model and it's the paradigm. What's dominant in the church is not the politics of America. What's dominant in the church is not the response to a pandemic. What's dominant in the church is not what color clothes the pastor's wearing. What's dominant in church is not what kind of music we sing, not what kind of building we meet in, not what kind of lights we have. What's dominant in the church is Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, reigning and ruling today. And we surrender and we follow and we worship him. Period. I mean, some of you, you're more, you're more passionate about pandemic politics than Jesus Christ. Some of us are more passionate about football than Jesus Christ. If we want awakening, if we want to get back in position, we've got to get our eyes back on Christ crucified. In our worship, in our relationships, and in our intercession. That we come to worship Rockbridge to get our hearts back captured, captivated, and standing in awe of Jesus Christ. Worship is not a consumer endeavor. Like you just pick a menu, I'll have that, I'll have that. Worship is I am here to lay it all down and to get my heart recentered on Jesus. Because the week's hard on your heart. Worship together, whether it's in person or online, worship is to recenter us on Jesus Christ. Our relationships should look Christ-like and cross-shaped. Our relationships should be sacrificial, right? Our relationships should be known for forgiveness, not frustration and condemnation and anger. Our relationships should be marked with compassion and grace because that's how Christ relates to us. And then our intercession, that we stand in the gap with our prayers and we pray blood-bought, empty tomb-based prayers for people. Look, look at Hezekiah. Look at, I love this prayer. He, they find out that a large number of the people didn't really take the Passover correctly. They ritualistically, they didn't observe some things, okay? So they ate, they'd eaten the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah interceded for them saying, may the good Lord provide atonement. He knows God is a saving God, an atoning God. Provide atonement on behalf of whoever sets his whole heart on seeking God, the Lord, the God of his ancestors, even though not according to the purification rules of the sanctuary. So Hezekiah is like, God, please don't hold it against them. Their hearts are, they're seeking you. Please don't hold it against them. And he intercedes for them. He discerns the heart of God and he prays and he pleads. I, I, I would ask us all. Let's pray and plead for our homes, for our fathers, for our mothers, for our kids, for the next generation, for our nation, for our community. Let's pray and plead. That's a position we can all take. We pray in the name of Jesus. We pray because of the blood of Jesus. We pray on the basis of the death of Jesus. And so Hezekiah takes that position. And remember what's God doing? He's looking for a man. He's looking for someone. He's looking for a people who will stand in that gap. And look what it says. So the Lord Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. Hezekiah was in position. So I'll go back. It's not my question. It's God's question. Where are you? Let's pray together. God, I just want that question that you asked Adam and God, I even feel like you asked it me, to me today because my attitude was not, not, not under your leadership. I just pray we ought to sit in that question just for a minute. Give your Holy Spirit just a little space. 
it's so hard. We're so busy. We're so distracted with phones and schedules. God, we just not still before you, but God, we're going to be still just for a second. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, you'd reveal as we just put this question over every part of our lives. God, where are we? And God, where are we? And the beautiful thing, God, when you ask that question, it's not to punish us or pay us back. It's to bring us back into close position, close proximity to you and your will for us. God, may every person here and listening and watching online, may every person take a step to be in position with you for your glory. And Jesus, thank you for taking our position on that old rugged cross. In your name we pray, amen.